Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart. Mo, the transfer window, mate, is about to close. Yes. Are you happy to see it? Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to be honest, I think a lot of that depends upon what happens between now and it actually closing. But in some senses, yes. <laughs> um, I'd be glad when football is the main topic of conversation. But obviously, there's probably another week after our window closes before that really happens unless we get something unequivocal in the next couple of days. It has been an absolutely mad window when you think about it, like across the board, not just in the Premier League, Saudi Arabia getting involved in all this stuff. and so It feels like over time, more and more Premier League clubs are doing business with other Premier League clubs to the extent where you're literally selling players to your rivals and stuff like that, and nobody is batting as much of an island as they used to. Uh, so on top of all that stuff, Obviously, there's a few stories in there, and Liverpool are playing football recently. We've just won a game 2 1, the most yeah. unlikeliest of wins ever, uh, which we will probably touch on. Uh, we've got a game this weekend, so we've got lots to get through. But first things first, as usual on this podcast, there is a, a very obvious link in the in the media. Uh, seems to be a goer, seems to have the green light. And we've touched on him, to be fair, a fair few times over mm. the course of the past six months or so. Ryan Gravenberg uh, looks like he's coming to Anfield at this at this current stage. Um, what are your thoughts, Mo? Um, Well, it's interesting to me because I do think that he's clearly been either top or near the top of our priority list when you take into account some of the other moves, such as the kind of um, shuffling our feet around Lavia and then the sudden spring for Caicedo. I think in the back of our mind, there's always been the case of if and when Bayern make a decision, he's the guy we're going to go for. So it's interesting to note that the role that we have apparently pegged him for is the same role that Bayern Munich don't think he can do, which is why they're letting him go. I think this is the real crux of the argument for me. It's going to come down to maybe in 12 to what I, one or two years time, there's going to be a, either Tuchel was right or Klopp was right. And um, I'm backing Jurgen Klopp, to be honest with you. I really don't think he'll play that much as a six, you know. I think he's coming in as kind of, as what it, what the media is saying, as, as a multi, multi-functional talent who, like, 
similar to White Album and similar to Henderson, just kind of um, occupied the role that we needed them to occupy, depending on who was available, who's injured, and you know who needs a rest and all that sort of stuff. So I, I, I'm not necessarily a believer that we are getting this player in to retrain him as a six. I'm, I'm okay. not really that sure on that. The, the only thing I think that he has in his favour regarding that is the fact he's massive. I think the fact he's six two six three, he has the frame of a DM, obviously. But I think, the, the, I think uh, if you if you look at his game, you look at his numbers and things like that. What he's good at, what he's bad at, how he plays the game, his nature. Th- there's no reason to expect him to become a six more than Curtis Jones or Alexis McAllister. Apart, it's it's just the fact he's massive. <laughs> yeah, I mean. May maybe I think that is interesting though that you think that because obviously a big part of why he wants to leave Bayern and why he's been so unsettled at Bayern is minutes, and mm. the assumption would have been the place where he would get the majority of minutes in this Liverpool side would be if he was playing as a six or maybe even as a double pivot, which could obviously still happen. But then when you look at the way that McAllister and Zobers life started, I mean Zobers life is pretty much nail down a starting position by the looks of things unless things go considerably wrong. So does that mean that he's going to be fighting with McAllister and Jones and maybe Elliot for the other eight position? Or is it going to be more bit of this, bit of that? Or are we going to see another completely new formation? So I am, like I say, they've clearly had a plan for him for a long time because they tried to sign him when Bayern tried to sign him. So they can answer this question. But for me, there's still a question of to what are you planning to do with him? Yeah, for, for the record, I, I do think he will play there. But I, I don't think Liverpool are getting him in thinking we've got a potential a potential Fabinho successor here. Mm. I, I think he's just a lad who can offer an option <laughs> there, like Milner did, like Wijnaldum did, like Henderson did. But I don't think there's a view of him becoming a specialist. I think it's much more likely that Bacetic will be the heir to Fabinho's throne, personally. And, you know, this will, I suppose, be another way of biding him a little bit of time if if Endo's unavailable or whatever, or, you know, certain things like that. But it is an interesting sign. Um, there's, there's pros and cons to this one, there really yeah. is. I think, I think a lot of people naturally are looking at the positive side of things. Um, and a little bit of a annoyance that I'm going to say now actually is on this podcast, right? I, a lot of the time, probably because you're a happy guy, Mo, but I get painted as the the misery <laughs> and the, uh, the the negative guy, right? But this is analyzing Anfield. This is what it's about. If you want cheerleading, go somewhere else. Hey. Analyzing Anfield is about um. Proper analysis, right? Analysis is about the pros and the cons and weighing it up. If you want to just focus on the positives, what is the point? You just you just painting a biased picture. Yeah, and 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 I think most people who listen to our show are kind of wanting to hear how we feel about things for real, and how we feel about things is normally based on analysis. That is normally how you and I come to our opinions. So that's naturally how it's going to be. I mean, I think if anyone is really upset about that by now, then they should know that it's not changing. Like, like yeah, it is yeah. what it is, guys. Yeah. I think for me, I just always kind of try to follow the evidence. That's probably the best way I'd put it. And I let that kind of shape, you know, my perception of it. But if you look at the positives then 
first. Um, obviously, we need midfielders for a start. He is a midfielder. Um, I've touched on there. He's got a he's got quite a physical frame attached to him. Um, I think the main thing is probably the fact that he's still only twenty one, mm-hmm. and twelve months ago, if this deal would have happened, we'd have all probably been a lot more positive on him simply because he hadn't had the time at Bayern Munich where he starts three Bundesliga games in a year. Um, so in terms of like the the base, if you want, what you're buying, like the the raw materials. To be honest, um, he's got a lot going for him. He's yeah. got a he's got a really good starting point to the extent that if you're a coach taking charge of him, it's a bit of an exciting prospect, to be honest, to, to kind of consider what you could do with this lad if you really maximise what he's good at. I think so as well. And I think even if you take the year, because obviously the year in Bayern, he was trying to do or being asked to do different things than he was previously when he was in Holland. But if you kind of take the comparison of his time in Holland compared to his time in the Bundesliga, there is a range of different skills that he has shown at different times. So from a coaching perspective, you can see how someone like Klopp can say, well, if I can channel more of this and less of this, then obviously there's a great player in there. And I think of, again, his passing range, but also his um, his ability to bring the ball out gives you those options that we are looking for in nearly all of our midfielders at the moment. Obviously, there are caveats with that, some of that, some of that stuff that I'm sure we will get to. But like you say, the raw materials are there uh, with good coaching. And the other thing you've got to remember, there was lots of talk about Eric Ten Hag being the man who'd got the best out of him. And that was why he was maybe leaning towards Manchester United. But he's got his international captain here at Liverpool. And he's got another good friend of his in Cody Gakpo. So you would assume that that little group, that nucleus, can help him easily and settle in quickly or quicker than he did at Bayern. And as we've seen from Sadio Mane, that can be a tough dressing room to come into. Yeah, I think the makeup as well of Bayern's midfield, it's just, it's been a midfield too for years now years and years and the players who've dominated that midfield too have been for the start absolutely elite and and second particularly the pair and now they're always available in, in Gretzka and Kimmich uh, before that you had Thiago in the mix as well uh, now you've got Conrad Limer in there and, and it looks like they're trying to get Pelina in or something like that so that'll be interesting but Gravenberg just hasn't really had much of a look in and I think it's interesting that the two lads who got him in I sent it, said this on the newsletter, Oliver Kahn and, and Hassan Salahamzic have, have both been sacked yeah. at the end of last season. I think they got a good player in, but they had no real overwhelming need for him. Um, and I think, to an extent, Liverpool are a little bit guilty of that last summer with, with Nunes and Carvalho. I think they, they, they arrived as two good players. I've mentioned this on the podcast. But in terms of where they fit, there was a bit of a question once they actually got in the door. It was a bit like, right, what do we do here then? And it, it felt like that's what Bayern have suffered from with Gakpo, uh, with uh, Gravenberg a little bit. Yeah. Um, but if you bring them to Merseyside, obviously Liverpool midfield department works a little bit differently. There tends to be a lot of rotation in Liverpool midfield departments and things like that. Um, and, you know, Linders obviously speaks the same language as him. He, he, he's from the same country as him and stuff. Mm-hmm. Liverpool have tracked him for a few years now. He's Ajax's youngest ever player as well. And if you think of the top of your head now, players who have come out of Ajax, mate. <laughs> it's a serious list. 
Yeah, no, exactly. And so for him to, like you say, come out of that system and get to the point where he was very much the leader of that team, to go and kind of focus too much on his one year at Bayern can do him a detriment. And, oh, yes, it's going to be similar at Liverpool in as much as the expectations are going to be high. Uh, the chances are the 20-minute the cameos that Tuchel didn't think he was very good at are some of the things that he's going to be asked to do again at Liverpool. It's not going to be all starts. So he's going to have to deal with some of the things at Liverpool that he couldn't at Bayern. But I think, again, I think there's the environment that we can create for him, I think, can help that. The interesting thing for me, though, when you dig deep in between the lines as to Tuchel, more more Tuchel than Nagelsmann. Nagelsmann, I think, had more belief in him. Um, the reasons why Tuchel was so sure that he couldn't play the defensive uh, midfielder role, because you're right, the the attacking midfield roles were pretty much locked up in the, within that Bayern squad. So Tuchel was saying, the only place you're playing for me is as part of the double pivot. And he was more critical of his attitude of his energy in tracking back, in his discipline and staying in position at times. So it wasn't so much he didn't have the tactical or technical tools to do the role. It was more the mental aspect. And I don't know whether or not that's a case of a footballer who's already frustrated at a club who told him he's going to start more than he has, or whether that's something more endemic. But if that is the main reason, and I say reading between the lines from Tuchel, so you can't really quote him on it, if it is one of the lead reasons, then that's something that Liverpool are going to have to address. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Well, you've just mentioned there about technical, uh, technical and tactical, you said. Um, and I think those are two departments where he, he does really shine. Um, obviously, tactically, he is quite versatile, bit of a blank slate. Um, some of that stems from his his well-rounded skill set and some of that stems from just any player who gets an education at Ajax seems to know what he's doing on the tactical side of things so he's he's good in that department and then technically he is a very very technical player Um if you watch him play he, he just he glides with the ball at times um really close control and really like almost aesthetically pleasing watching him a bit like I've likened them the, the way in which he carries the ball at times. It, it it depicts shades for me of like maybe a little bit of folding in there, maybe a little bit mm-hmm. of Eze in there, as in just a proper ball carrier who is comfortable with the ball at his feet and dynamic and, and things like that. Um, yeah. So there's lots of positive elements to touch on there. But <laughs> here we go. The negative side <laughs> of things, mate. See, I've helped you by getting a few digs in early. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is why we're here. This is why we're here. So, the negative side of things. My big thing with this is, if you look at him in isolation as a player that Liverpool sign for thirty million as well, by the way, which is rumored to be the price tag, that's absolutely fine. I have no issues whatsoever with that. But if you 
associate him specifically with what the squad needs right now, which in my opinion is the squad, <clears throat> this team isn't good enough without the ball yet to get anywhere near a league title, really. I don't think Gravenberg has any impact whatsoever on Liverpool's defensive game. I think he's another player for, for with the ball. Maybe his ability with the ball gives you more control and, mm. and as a result of that, you improve defensively. But overall, um, I don't think he has much of an impact at all on Liverpool's defensive game. And that, for me, is what Liverpool needs to improve on to have a good season. So, in that sense, for me, it's curious. Yeah, and the, the other thing kind of attached to what I was saying about what Tuchel said about him in terms of energy and effort, those are the key tenets of pressing and of winning the ball back. And if you are going to be playing in central midfield areas, that is absolutely going to be your bread and butter playing for Liverpool. So, again, it feels like another one of those situations where one manager has believed that this player can't do this thing, another manager has believed he can. And we'll have to hope that our one has got it right. But there are a few things where you look at his numbers isolated and say, okay, he's able to make tackles. He has got good comparative tackle numbers, but they are all in higher up positions on the field. So it has to be seen that he can replicate it further back because it's not just a simple case of being 20 yards further back in the pitch or even in a certain different area. It's more about the different jobs you have to occupy if you're playing, if you're playing as a double pivot, for example, so you would be naturally a bit deeper than maybe he's been allowed to be for Bayern when he's normally got a Kimmich behind him and maybe even a Goretzka as well if Musiala's not around. So <clears throat> it's different um, tasks that you're going to be asking him to do. And the numbers say that maybe he can, but the one that keeps jumping out at me is the dispossessed, how many times he is dispossessed. And... I feel like that's something that other teams potentially can target. And if he's meant to be, like you say, part of our defensive structure from wherever he's starting on the pitch, if he's in a situation where him being dispossessed leads to a gaping hole in the middle of our midfield for an opposition to run through, that's a problem. Well, throughout pre-season and, and, you know, in the game so far, balance has been a recurring theme on this podcast in terms of that's what Liverpool need to get towards. And, you know, I thought it was very interesting when Klopp met Botaro Endo for the first time. And in that conversation, he literally says to him, we have a very offensive squad and um, starts laughing like a mad scientist. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I think that that is an obvious indicator that Liverpool need to address that kind of balance thing. And I think... Again, Gravenberg has the qualities to be a bit of a jack-of-all-trades where he can maybe be a bit of a middle-third balancer for you, like Wijnaldum was. But mm -hmm. um, the way in which he's coming in now, at least, is as a just a bit of an expressive ball-playing dynamic carrier of the ball. A, a, a bit like... It's, it's kind of like Liverpool signing... Another case is Jones, but someone, but one who a isn't as intense defensively, and b isn't as safe on the ball, <laughs> but in, but has the same kind of attacking desire to get involved and to carry and dribble and you know things like that. 
So what you're saying is we've signed Curtis Jones from two years ago. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because, again, you do look at numbers and you do watch games and look at footballers and, and kind of try to take into account some of their character when making decisions about can they succeed at a different club, particularly when they haven't at the former club. And like you say, you do think about being put in the best position to succeed. And yeah, if we are going to be continuing, if we are going to be looking at him playing a more defensive role than he's used to, then maybe that doesn't do that. If we are looking at just being a top-heavy team that just tries to blow everybody away and, and Klopp goes, yeah, we're going to be like <laughs> the, the red arrows and just, yeah, fill your boots. I mean, that'll be interesting, but it might be something that kind of gets him going a little bit more. But again, we'll have to wait and see. You know what? I'm, I'm really surprised that Klopp, because I, I certainly am, I'm, I'm really surprised that Klopp, he doesn't seem to be particularly scarred <laughs> from last season. Because <laughs> I, I I don't know about you, mate, I was absolutely sick and tired by a certain point of watching Liverpool get caught right open, just literally sliced open like that. And I think part of the problem behind that was we had a, a really tired midfield department. Obviously, he's regenerated the midfield department. We've got younger players in now. We've got players with more legs and all that sort of stuff. So that will improve naturally. But in terms of just really, really taking care of that and and getting in someone or you know getting in profiles players who who, who really care about that sort of thing, because um, you've lost Fabinho, you've lost Milner, you've lost Henderson, you've lost Naby. Mm. All four of them, for me, were predominantly against the ball players rather than players with the ball. Even for me, you know, you could say it was a, a really, you know, a bit of a defender almost for Liverpool. And we've we, we've replaced those players so far with, with good players. But um, I'm just a bit, again, going back to that balance thing, it's going to be interesting to see if Gravenberg can kind of adapt to be what Liverpool need him to be. Mm-hmm. Or if he's just going to kind of add to this recurring theme of Liverpool being overflowing almost on the attacking side. Yeah, and again, I think it depends to a certain extent upon whether or not he is just trialled in a in a position and given a run of games, or whether or not he the games are picked and chosen as supposed to when he plays where. So maybe Klopp thinks that against certain opponents he can work as a more defensive-minded midfielder, and then as against other opponents, you'd see him in a different situation. That's not beyond the realm's possibility. But again, like you say, even within that, it does feel like you are massively fortifying one area and leaving another area a little bit for it, a little bit open. But, <clears throat> I mean, the other thing we have to think of or factoring in this, what you were saying before about another guy for whom off-the-ball work is his bread and butter, is his passion. Um, dare I say it, the man who um, Bayern Munich are trying to buy, having sold us Ryan Gravenberg, i.e. Jao Paulini, that you mentioned mm, earlier. Yeah. Because, yes, all the arguments about age will continue to flow, but we did kind of talk about the work rate that he's been put through does kind of mitigate that to a certain extent. But also, I do think this could be a situation where you are going to be buying someone and saying, there is going to be no sell-on value. On this one, this is just going to be a guy who gives us two to three years. And by the time those two to three years are up, we won't have to replace him because Bicetich will be as good as him. Like, genuinely, 
that's the move I'd be doing at this yeah. stage. Yeah, I can I can see the thinking, but it is really insistent this this Liverpool and Bayern Munich thing because if you if you look at the Bayern squad and you look at the Liverpool squad, they they are very similar in the sense of you've got so much attack and firepower at both clubs at the minute. Tuchel is looking at his squad, seeing Gravenberg there and saying, "No, that's not what we need. We need someone like a Polina, someone like a Casado, someone like a." Amrabat, Chiuamani, that I think they've been linked with all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Liverpool are opening their arms for Gravenberg and not going and getting a real dog, a, re- a real destroyer, like a Fabinho replacement. I know we got Endo in, but um, I don't overly see him as that, to be honest. I think he, you know, he's 30 and that. And, um, yeah, I thought he was going to be a bit more of a squad player, but look, he's going to play a bit more of a part this season. But just looking at the the Liverpool Bayern Munich thing, it's it's mad that Liverpool are trying to solve their problem with with the lad Bayern Munich don't want. It's, yeah, it's really funny how that <clears throat> is working out. Like, it's yeah, it's um, different views on the same thing and the same people. And I think, to be honest, going back to the original point about how long it took for Liverpool to do this deal or how long it took for Bayern Munich to get to the point where they were ready to sell. There are still loads of people in that building who feel like they can get a tune out of Gravenberg. And there were people who were like, are you sure? Are you sure? And Tuchel's like, no, I'm sure. I'm sure, trust me. Because I know what I need my uh, defensive midfielder to do. And I've seen what this fella does, and it's not it. So whether or not that's a main difference in what Klopp and Tuchel want that player to do, or whether or not they just disagree on his ability to do it. See, Tuchel is like this. Like when he was at Paris Saint Germain, he was yeah. he, he looked at all the attacking lads around him, you know, Neymar and Mbappe and all this, and he, he desperately wanted uh, N'Golo Kante at the time, yeah. and that, that was why. And he couldn't get Kante. They ended up getting Adrissa Gay, who is another self-sacrificing ball winner. He was going to do the running of two men and let the other lads play. Now Tuchel's gone into Bayern. He's looked around and he's been like, again, I need someone who's just going to sacrifice themselves here mm-hmm. to, to just let the other lads go and win us the game. And it looks like he's potentially getting Palinia to do, to do that. Um, but Liverpool are doing it differently. And to be honest, it's it's quite interesting looking at the past two windows, really. You know, going back to January. At, in January, the window opened. Every Liverpool fan under the sun was like, right, Midfielders then, and Klopp went and signed Cody Gakpo, a forward, and now <coughs> we've lost Fabinho. Every Liverpool fan has been right number six then, and we have got a six in the okay and endo, but rather than really taking care of that, we, we we're going and getting Davenberg, who's a bit more of a all rounder, blank slate, but a bit more of an attacking player. So it's it's one of them to be honest. Where I hope it goes well, it definitely can go well. But if if it doesn't, and if Liverpool get cut open all season again, Klopp really just has to look in the mirror, and and it's he's got to own it because it's yeah. it's a big risk what he's doing. Like it's a, it's a gamble what he's doing. He's, he's betting on what the player could become, and he's betting on like you know um, his ability to to do what Klopp wants him to do essentially. Yeah. And, and the ability of the other players brought in to raise the general level of the team to make it easier for those things to happen. I feel like 
in Klopp's mind, it is very much a this helps this happen, which helps this happen, which helps this happen. So you can understand it why why he would be optimistic about his plan. But there are a lot of steps in that plan, which ergo means there's lots of things that can go wrong. And we've already seen the effect that injuries can have, <clears throat> particularly if you do only have a small amount of options per particular um, positions. But going back to what you are saying before about the, the method of replacing Fabinho, to look at it, I compare it to the way we have fortified the forward line. It would almost assume that Klopp didn't really value that position that highly. Mm. But that kind of doesn't really track with the importance of Fabinho in our very best team at his best. And the fact that <laughs> he was playing for a considerable time below par before he was pulled out of the team. Ergo, again, Klopp still thought he was relatively important. So whether that's changed because they're trying to do things completely differently and so that position is going to be less important and they're thinking, well, maybe the move is to not have one guy who we rely on to do so much and we kind of do it more by committee. Or or there's something else up their sleeve. They really believe that Bicetic will grow into this role and that by kind of covering him by committee with a little bit from everybody else in double pivots and defensive midfields and what have you. It will give him the space to grow and to learn into it. But like you say, it's a risk. And it's one that, considering the moves of other teams, considering the, the depth of teams who believe they can get Champions League football, is probably bigger now than it's been for quite some time, then it is an even bigger risk. But... The evidence we've seen so far, we have to kind of acknowledge that as well. Liverpool have played away from home against two teams who, I, as I mentioned, will be expecting to challenge the Champions League. And we've come away unbeaten, seven points from nine. We're in a good position to attack. One more good result before the break. And we can feel like we set ourselves up well for the rest of the season. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, it's it's an interesting transfer, it really is. Um, uh, I'm generally in favour of of the deal in isolation as a thirty million pound deal for for Ryan Gravenberg. I think that's absolutely fine. But it's it's just I do still have concerns that Liverpool are top heavy and they lack balance. And when that's the case, you just never really in control in the game and that. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if that can be resolved. But obviously. The transfer, we're recording on there Thursday afternoon. Transfer window shut tomorrow night. It remains to be seen um, if Liverpool are going to get anybody else in. If it was Gravenberg on his own and that was it, how would you feel? Uh, I mean, I'd still feel we were light defensively, to be honest with you. But again, anyone who's listened to us over the last month wouldn't be surprised to hear me say that. <laughs> but... I think it would be it would be interesting to see Klopp give the team that kind of trust because, as I say, if we are able to get a positive result or another win against Aston Villa, I feel like that will keep us within the top four going into this break. And that break, obviously, the break is in itself a break, and all of our players are going to be going all over the place. So it's not like he can just sit there and work with them, but he can now start to think about how to organise the squad better. And when you start to factor in the European football, we're going to get the draw in another couple of days. So we're going to know a little bit more about who we'll be facing in the Europa League. You can start to map out 
who plays where in an ideal world. And then suddenly you look at the squad and you think that this is a squad that can potentially compete on those levels. Like you say, there are potential rather large obvious pratfalls, i.e. the injury history of the guys we're relying on in central defence. And now this Virgil van Dijk charge, which could mean that we were without him for an extended period. Those are obviously things we're going to need to ride out. But if we do, then I think we can be positive. Yeah, I, I would like us before the window closes to add a left-footed defender. Um, I don't think I can see it happening, really. But that would make me feel a lot better balance-wise because if you're then adding Gravenberg as a... Say Gravenberg plays as the six and you've got Trent to his right, Soboslai to his right and McAllister further up. That's a very <laughs> expressive midfield department. That's a very expressive box midfield. But if Robertson was to come out the team and an actual centre-back was to go in at left-back, that would help the whole cause. That would balance things a little bit at least. So... Um, I would like to see that happen. I would like to have that option this season if Liverpool need, if say Liverpool go away to like Manchester City or something like that, and we're going to play with this box. The three at the back have to be three proper defenders for me at least. And Robertson is is not really. He's a bit more. He's still more in the high flying fullback mold, isn't he? Um, so I would like to see that happen. Um, but as of right now, we can't really comment on any of those rumors. So that will be one fair. For the future, really. Um, but in terms of one final link, which doesn't even deserve any air time, to be honest, but Mo Salah uh, is getting linked with a move to Saudi Arabia. Obviously, their window shuts after the Premier League window. I think there's about another week or two or something like that. Um, big, big money linked and all this stuff. What's your stance on this? Well... I don't mind answering this question because I've not had to, the chance to publicly answer this question, so allow me. I do think, obviously, it makes perfect sense for the Saudi league that Mo Salah would be their number one superstar. He is the number one star of the African world and probably the Arab world as well. So he would be, no doubt, the jewel in their crown above and everybody, even in Mbappe, I think, and definitely Ronaldo. So you can see why they'd go after him. You can see why they would think based on what happened around Fabinho and Henderson, where it went from, we're absolutely not selling them to, oh, how much? Okay, we might talk it. You can see why they would go after them. But, and I say this very strongly, there is still no evidence that the Saudi Pro League is going to be a competitive, strong, worthwhile league. Like, they've got a lot of good players in there now. But we don't know what the games are like. We don't know how competitive it's going to be. We don't know really if anyone's watching because I ain't. So, <laughs> someone like Mo Salah, that stuff's important. He values himself as a player. We've heard so much about how how he wants to play at the top level forever and ever and ever. And the top level does not look like the Saudi Pro League. Now, twelve months time, that might be different. They might have had a miraculous year and suddenly it becomes a more viable option. Most Salah will have one year left on this deal. All of the riches that are being offered at his door right now will still be on offer in 12 months' time. So there's no rush for Salah. There's absolutely no desire for Liverpool. 
and there are no shortage of Saudi um, benefactors who will want him in 12 months' time. So this deal right now makes absolutely no sense. One other thing I would add in. It is really interesting how many Liverpool players are being suddenly linked with Saudi clubs because it's not just Salah. It's Canate, Joe Gomez. We've already had uh, Fabinho and Henson. Alisson was linked as well. Now, obviously, Saudi are very strongly linked to Newcastle, who finished fourth in the Premier League, compared to Liverpool, who finished fifth in the Premier League. <laughs> now, I can't think of any reason why it would be beneficial to the Saudi-owned Newcastle United for suddenly loads of Liverpool players to be destabilised. This is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Conspiracy theories on the go, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, in terms of Salah, um, my my answer, my thoughts on this is just very template. To be honest, I haven't really got much to add. I, I just think the same as pretty much everybody else. I think it's far too late to even think about it. I think it, it probably will happen in 12 months, which I'm fine with. Well, when I say I'm fine with, depends on his level at the time, but you do have to cash in on him at some point, I think, and he'll have one year left on his contract next summer. We've probably had the best of him, so I... I'm relatively okay with that. Um, the the big thing I can add to this one, no, the, the, my massive thing on this, because I've seen people already doing the whole let's get so-and-so into replacement, right? For me, massively, I'm going to underline this and I'm going to say it twice for the people at the back. Any most shallow replacements has to be left-footed. For the love <laughs> of God, he has to be left-footed, mate. <laughs> Liverpool have got a team of right-footers and Salah has had a completely different element, added a completely different dynamic to Liverpool's attack since he came in because he's offered goals from the right. This is why Manchester United went and spent so much on Anthony because he's left-footed. Not because he's very good, because he's left-footed. Ten Hag came in and knew that he didn't have a single left-footer in his attack um, and he addressed it. Uh, City, again, you know, going to like Mares and, and, and players like this. Sane, I think, was left-footed. Mm. Um, Saka is left-footed, plays every minute. Salah plays every minute for Liverpool. If you start playing a right-footer over there, Liverpool's squad is already imbalanced, as we've touched on. If you start playing with the team right-footers, Sobosley right-footed, McAllister right-footed, Endo right-footed, mm. the only one in midfield and the front line who isn't left footed who is left footed is Harvey Elliott. That's it. So any replacement for Salah has to be left footed and that will not be easy because that immediately narrows the pool. Liverpool are gonna need a good year to be honest to find the proper successor for them. Um it won't it's it, it, it can't happen now. That deal just cannot happen now. You need you need to plan that deal because that's He's going to be a massive loss on Liverpool's ability to to win games and deliver points and stuff like that. Liverpool without Mo Salah over the years do not get 90 points once, never mind three times. He's a special player and for this season especially he has to stay in the building. I'm not even 100% sure I want to sell him next season. I think that we'll get to the end of the season and he'll have had another 30-goal year and we'll suddenly be like, how can we possibly sell this guy? But 
I'm like you. It absolutely has to be left-footed. And something else I'd add to it as well, not only because of the production, but because of the stature of the man and what he's meant to this club. I don't think you can replace him with one player. I just don't. I think this to say that there's one guy who's going to do the Salah thing and play in the Salah position and do the Salah roles, I think is asking a hell of a lot. And you can see now why maybe part of introducing him as more of a creator or allowing him to become more of a creator over the course of this season and maybe next as well is a way of already starting to share out some of the goals around everybody else. So it's inevitable that Liverpool will buy someone the same year that he will leave and he, that person will be compared to Mo Salah. But I don't think it's feasible to ask anybody to come in and replicate his production. No, you you, you can't really... You, you can't replace him, mate. He, he's an absolute diamond, an absolute one in a million. Because if you look at his profile, just, you know, without even watching him play, his profile is so rare because, because of a, a, the whole package, really. So just for, like, a, a, the basics on that, you, you put in there that he's... He never misses a game for a start. Never, ever misses a game. Then you throw in there that he is left-footed. So, again, the pool, the pool narrows again massively. And then you throw in there that, in addition to being left-footed, he's one of the quickest players on the planet and, and, and capable of threatening him behind. Just those three alone make him so rare. Like, if you think of a lot of left-footed forwards out there, attackers out there or whatever, like, say, for example, off the top of my head, Bernardo Silva. Yeah. Left-footed, great. Injury record, pretty good. Not, he's not quick enough to threaten him behind. Very few players ha- have that those three on the side. And then on, on top of those three, he is an absolute output merchant when it comes to goals and assists. So... You, you aren't, you really, even Messi, mate. M- Messi's left footed. Messi is an output merchant. Messi's yeah. never injured. Messi can't really threaten him behind. Salah can. I'm not saying Salah's better than Messi <laughs> before, before anyone dives on me there because I would I have swapped Messi for Salah a few years ago. Yes, definitely. But what I'm trying to get at is Salah is just. <laughs> Our, our producer there has just threw in that um, that is apparently our social clip. Oh, yeah. So I, yeah. I'll probably get battered for that one. Thanks for that, mate. Definitely. Um, like, I know, I know yeah, the, what I'm like trying to say, touch on is, is how rare he is, you know, complete yeah. needle in the haystack. Like. I mean, the only player who instantly came to mind when you was talking about those three characteristics, and he even only has time to develop into the first one because he has had injuries, is uh, Karim Amy at Dortmund. And I think that if we are replacing Salah in a year's time, I wouldn't be surprised if he was the one looking at one of the targets. Because I do think, even though he does play a lot of time on the left for Dortmund, he is left-footed. So, obviously, he spent a lot of time playing on the right as well. But even then, even someone like that, who does have a lot of things going for him within the criteria we're looking for, it's still a big risk to ask him to come in and be good and then ask him to come in and be Mo Salah. So I think we're all going to need to, one, temper our expectations for whatever that future will be, and two, not wish him away when he's clearly still a fantastic footballer. Yeah, I think that the final word that we will touch on on this podcast this week is Darwin Nunes. Um, we we have to after on the back of that game, absolutely nuts. 
Liverpool go down to 10 when he, he wins the game for us in the final 10, 15 minutes. Um, made up for him. Um, what, do you, what do you think, Mark? What, what are your thoughts? You know, the thing that crossed my mind when I knew we were going to talk about this today, it's like, you know when you've been dropping hints about a Christmas present and you, you're not <laughs> sure whether or not those hints have been picked up, no one said yeah. anything. Yeah, and then yeah. suddenly on Christmas morning, it's there, exactly what you wanted. Because think about how long we've been talking about a game for Nunes where he comes on against a defence that's tiring and stretched and he really punishes them and he really shows what he can do and he takes those chances that are given to him and potentially uses that to kick on. Well, this is it. This was that writ large. Like you say, he came on and changed the game. He won the game with his finishing ability, with his ice-cold veins. And I do think that the first one aided the second one. But still, that first one really, really does bear a repeated lodge because he really doesn't have a lot to aim at. And yes, obviously the mistake from the defender gets him in there. But honestly, honestly, hand on heart, how many of us expect him to score that? I don't think very many. No, Even despite just... his improvement in preseason, which yeah. shows the high value of the chance. But once he has scored that, suddenly anything is possible. And obviously, in terms of winning, that being the winning goal, a lot of help was given to us by Newcastle, not putting us to the sword at the times when we were looking woeful. But the fact remains that he was able to dig us out. He was able to come in and be the hero at a team when the team really needed him. He delivered when we needed him too, despite not having the best situation for him. He wasn't on the start. He hasn't hard, He hasn't started a game yet this season. Feeling frustrated, feeling underappreciated. And he came on and he showed what he can do. Like, that is literally the perfect scenario for me. Well, what I loved about it was, was the, the fact that both goals were virtually identical in terms of him threatening him behind, running away from the ball, um, and just kind of being the tip of the spear. Essentially, and that's that's what I've been wanting to see from him. Um, tactical situations haven't really allowed him to do that. The makeup of the squad and, and the way things have developed so far, but the the way in which he was used and the way in which he won the game is exactly the kind of player I have in mind as to what he could become if we let him be that. Um, obviously, we're playing against ten men every week. Uh, sorry, we're playing with ten men every week, but. As that player who runs away from the ball, he, he's really dangerous. And Gary Neville said after the game in his podcast, I think that out of, if you look at Jota, if you look at Gakpo, if you look at Nunes, he would choose to play against Nunes last because yeah. he, he said he, he scared life out of me. So you've got to incorporate him somehow. Uh, as I always say, it costs us a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's your obligation almost to find a way in for him. I think we're getting there. We are getting there. And the more we control games, the more we'll be able to use them. Um, people have said on the back of this, you know, on the back of scoring twice, he has to start against Villa. The only thing about that is the reasons he hasn't played yet are still very much there, even though he's just scored twice. You know, it, the reason he hasn't been playing is, hasn't really been because he doesn't score goals. It's it's been because he um, kind of impacts our compactness and, and our defensive game and uh, our chaos and yeah. that would still be the case. The only th reason I do think he's got a chance this weekend against Villa is Emery employs an offside trap 
um, top of the Premier League last season by some distance for offsides. So that is, you know, that's ideal for Nunes when you think about it. So I do think he's got a chance to be in the team. I do. And I think the fact that Villa has kind of moved to three at the back to kind of consolidate the injury to Tyrone Mings means that they're less likely to be swarmed in midfield than they were previously, which means, again, there might be more space for someone like Nunes to go in in and around. But yeah, you're right. It's kind of strange in a way that, like you say, Unai Emery is the best manager out there at exploiting a team's weaknesses. And we've already given him one go at this system and he did pretty well against it. Uh, so you have to say that the, the you'd have to be very, it'd be a risk of, of having Nunes in there, like you say, in terms of his positioning, his ability to deliver a quality press, particularly when he's trying to press three centre-backs. It's a risk, but by the same token, I do think if you look at what Aston Villa don't want to do, they wouldn't want to deal with Nunes. The, the same is true. So you wonder whether you think maybe give someone else a go at the beginning, wait for Villa to tire and then unleash him again and hope that he gives another angry performance. Or you're saying, okay, let's see what you can do. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting game. I think it's going to be a tricky one. Um, I am going to be in the ground and I'll probably be hiding behind the seats. Because <laughs> I do think there's something, there's something about Emery when Emery's an underdog that he's, uh, he is just tactically very good at coming up with them one-off plans, isn't he? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a tricky game, potential banana skin there, but we'll round up there anyway. Um, yeah. Next week, which would be the review of whatever happens in the transfer window, I am not going to be here. Um, I'm away next week. But that's because it's the international break, so there's not yeah. much for me to stay around for anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we've got to take a break at some point. I mean, yeah, I'm, not, I'm, yeah. I'm not, but, you know, the fact <laughs> yeah. uh, But the week after, we'll be back as normal. So, Mo, thanks for joining us, mate. No problem. Pleasure as always. And we'll see you in two weeks. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.